0: well, if you will, um, you can go ahead and open up with me to Luke 22. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. And as you do that, I've got a question for you to, to think about. And that question is, as we're going to be talking about um, the betrayal, you know, that you know, Judas betraying Jesus this morning... The question is have any of you ever experienced betrayal before? Betrayal betrayal cuts us deep. And it does that because in order to really be betrayed you're going to have to have had a good level of love, a level of expectation, and a level of trust that is then broken. And just give an example of this a little bit of a funny example, but when I came to Seaford, uh, I had zero experience really whatsoever with board games. And I was told right away, like, Seaford, we we play a lot of board games with the young adults, and so we, you know, the young adults have a lot of game nights. And I quickly found out that a lot of them, the whole big strategy behind these board games is betrayal. And I'm not good. So, what I would do is we would have these young adults board game nights, and I would follow Kyler Hare. I would sit next to Kyler. He would kind of guide me on what to do. And, you know, if there's a game where I'm like, I really don't know what to do, he's like, just do this. And I would just trust him. And for three and a half years, this has worked really well, except once. Because we were playing this game where you kind of under the table, you all have to choose someone to betray and get out. And I was following Kyler, and he was telling me, and I put my person down, and sure enough, Kyler had gotten everybody else to get me out. And so after all this time of building up that trust and that expectation that Kyler's going to help me out, he betrayed me. (laughs) Except that's a game, and literally the point of that game was to betray each other, and I've continued to follow after Kyler because I still don't know what I'm doing in board games, and he has continued to help me out for the most part. But I share that story because it's a funny example of what betrayal is. You put your trust in someone, you let your guard down, and then you get stabbed in the back. And it hurts when you actually get betrayed, and not just in a board game, it hurts. And most of us, if not all of us, have experienced betrayal in real life, not just in a board game. And it hits hard. And it takes a long time to recover from it. But betrayal is not just limited to us. Jesus, the Son of God, was Himself betrayed. God Himself has been betrayed by His people. Yet we find redemption in how the Lord responds to betrayal. Because by means of betrayal, God both teaches us about the frailty of humanity and also redeems humanity itself. He repairs the broken and, and breached trust and He restores the honor and dignity of human life. Recall that as we set the scene for our passage today, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and He has been teaching in the synagogue every day. He has put an end to the public opposition that the religious leaders express towards Him. Now, that does not mean that the religious leaders are done with Him. You know, what we're going to see right now is in Luke 22, we witness the beginning of of the end of Jesus' earthly life. We peer into Judas's betrayal, but we also take a glimpse into Jesus' redemption. So let's read Luke 22, verses 1 through 13. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come to your word this morning, God, I pray that you help us to to see what it was, what you were saying through Luke to the original audience, you know, who who originally read this gospel. But also, God, we pray that you help us to see what you are saying to us through this today. God, I pray that as I preach this message that you are speaking through me, and God, I pray that you are at work um, through this passage as, as we read it, as, as I preach it, and as we apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the big thing that we see in this passage in verses really in 1 through 6 is we see that the betrayal of Jesus was prompted by Satan, and we see a few kind of subpoints through for that main point that kind of go along with that. And the first one is that we see that the betrayal of Jesus was prompted by Satan during sanctified time. That's what we see in verse 1. We see that it was nearly time for the festival of unleavened bread, which was also called Passover. And for the Jewish people, this was a sanctified or a holy time. The festival and Passover stretch back centuries to the time when Israel was in slavery in Egypt and God sent Moses to deliver them. It stretches back to the 10th plague in the Exodus when God sent forth the angel of death to strike dead the firstborn of every household except those under a particular exemption. And God instructed Israel to prepare a meal of bitter herbs and to eat the meal fully dressed that night because the Passover would happen hurriedly. And the Lord also commanded Israel to spread the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. God promised that when the angel of death was probing all the homes of Egypt, if he saw the blood on the doorpost, that he would pass by. He would pass over those homes to strike those that were not covered by the blood. And so, as we set the scene here, verse 1 opens up in this holy season, the season of celebration. The entire nation is celebrating the day that God saw the blood of the Lamb and spared their firstborn sons and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It's sanctified time. As we go into verse 2, we also see that this betrayal of Jesus was prompted by Satan with sinful leaders. You see, you would expect the religious leaders to be preparing for this time of worship. And you think about it, What do we do as Christians during the Christmas season or during the Easter season? We take some time to be intentional, to remember what what are we celebrating and why are we celebrating it. We share that with our children. I'll sit, as Melody gets older, I certainly will with her. Right now with Brooklyn, we sit her down before Christmas and Easter and we talk about this is what we are celebrating. There's all these great things that happen on these holidays, but this is why. This is why we are celebrating. This is why this is important. And as we do that, we prepare ourselves so that we can be intentional as we celebrate Christmas or Easter or or these really important days within the Christian faith. But we see here these chief priests and these scribes, that's not what they were doing. What they were doing was that during this holy season, they were looking for a way to put Jesus, the Son of God, to death they had a big problem. As much as they wanted to kill Jesus, they were afraid of the people. You see, the people respected Jesus. They thought that Jesus was a prophet, and they would come to the temple to hear Jesus preach every morning. And so the priests and the scribes, they couldn't just go and kill Him outright. They needed to have the secret way to assassinate Him, because with these holy, day, holy days coming more and more people were going to be coming to hear Jesus. And so, something needed to be done or Jesus would gain an even larger following. And Satan had an idea that he knew that they would like. And so, we see here in verse 3 that betrayal of Jesus was prompted with satanic influence. You see, the scribes and the priests, they were not acting alone in their hatred for the Lord. Satan was on the scene too. And verse 3 tells us that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Judas served in Jesus's inner circle as one of the original twelve apostles, and Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Now, it's important to note that Luke's statement that Satan entered into Judas does not suggest something like demon possession, Rather, what it suggests is influence. And the same idea is stated in Acts 5, 3 by Peter to Ananias, the husband of Sapphira. And it says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The Apostle John also describes what happened to Judas in the upper room in John thirteen twenty seven, where it says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Judas's heart was under the devil's influence. But on each occasion, Satan could not have entered into Judas unless Judas opened that door. We know from the scriptures that Judas did this for money. And when he had earlier objected, um, back before in John 12 6, when he had objected to Mary's anointing Jesus with the expensive perfume, we read he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used. To, he used to help Himself to what was put into it. And so, we see, you know, here in the passage we, we just read in John 12, 6, we see Judas's love of money. And it takes us to our next point as we go through this, verses 1 through 6 of this betrayal of Judas. It was prompted by Satan, we see in verse 1, during sanctified time, in verse 2, with sinful leaders, in verse 3, with satanic influence, and then in verses 4 through 6, with this secret plot The result of all of this was this plot to kill Jesus, to betray Jesus, and put Him to death. The priests now had an inside man and an inside job waiting to be carried out. As Matthew tells us, Judas sold out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. That was the hit price. And now Judas would look for a secret place away from the crowd to betray Jesus. You know, for the, As far as the plan goes, it would, it would all come together really easily. Now they have an insider. They, you know, Judas knew every one of Jesus' moves. He was, he was inside. He was a disciple. He would choose a time when the crowd slept and when Jesus was isolated, when Jesus was vulnerable. He knew exactly when Jesus was going to be most vulnerable. And so the religious leaders and now their new co-conspirator, they made preparations for the kill. And this passage, it's one of many in the Gospels where it's so awesome that we have, you know, these different accounts, the four Gospels coming together, telling of the same event, but, you know, each from, you know, different perspectives of different people recall these events that help us to be able to put them together and get the full picture of what happened, to get all of those details. And so, right now, I'm going to take a step away from Luke. And we're going to look at what John says about this event in John chapter 13. John's introduction sets the stage in verses 1 and 2, where it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him. Jesus knew what Judas was up to. But as with the other disciples, you know, it, would show that, it would show Judas that he loved them to the end as he stretched out to his sinking soul. As we come to this dialogue of sorts between Jesus and Judas, the evening is rather late. Remarkable teaching has taken place, and Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you, I know who I, whom I have chosen, talking here about who He has chosen to be His disciples. And then he says, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting here Psalm 41, nine. even my close friend in whom I have trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And tellingly, this is a reference to Ahithophel, hard name to pronounce, King David's friend who so grievously betrayed him. And this expression has lifted his heel against me. It describes the lifting of a horse's foot and then delivering a deadly kick. This is just what Judas was about to deliver to Jesus. Jesus was saying, my friends, there is an Ahithophel in our midst, and he is reclining at table. He is eating and sharing my bread, And with this shocking truth out, Jesus continues in verses 19 through 21, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives the one who sent Me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. As we see this scene unfold, we can tell that his anguish was visible. As it says in the passage, he was troubled as he said this. All of his disciples would have been able to see his emotion, but they would have never guessed that it was about Judas. But Judas's murderous determination remained. Jesus here was demonstrating a remarkable truth, On the eve of the cross, just a few hours before the nails would go into His body, Jesus' soul was troubled, not for Himself, but for another. And not just for anyone, but for the one who was going to deliver Him to death. Jesus says this, and the disciples are in shock. Matthew's gospel records in Matthew 26, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And Judas, as he reclined close by Jesus, he played the game too. He asks the same question three verses later. Is it I, Rabbi? No one there, other than Jesus and Judas, obviously, But no one else, none of the disciples, had the slightest inkling that it was Judas. Again, we see the Lord's loving heart, because in a tight group like the twelve, if Jesus had cast even the slightest doubt, the slightest suspicion Judas' way, the other disciples would have been right on it. But He didn't. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, and so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, to which Jesus responded, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. The offer of the dipped morsel was both a rich symbolic custom and a powerful, ultimate appeal. You see, in Palestinian culture, the act of the host taking a morsel from the table, dipping it into the common dish, and offering it to another was a gesture of honor and friendship. And a thousand years before, back in the book of Ruth, when Boaz invited his future wife, Ruth, to come and dine with him, he said, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. And he served her. So Jesus was saying, as he extended this dipped bread, Judas, here is my friendship. It's not too late. Well, Judas took that bread, but he did not turn back to the master. And so the door slammed shut, and he locked it with his own hand. Judas took that morsel, and Satan entered into him. As it says in in verses 27 through 30, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. For Judas, it was the night that would know no morning. He had the information that he needed. And as he hurried through the dark streets to the chief priests and to the elders, his last glimpse of Jesus would be by torchlight as Jesus was taken away. This paradox of divine governance leaps from this story. The religious establishment in Judas, empowered by Satan, were determined that Jesus should die. And Jesus, as an antidote, to the world's rebellion, came to earth. He came to Jerusalem determined to die. As John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And here we see the gospel, the gospel love for those that are ungodly. We see that for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We see the gospel love for sinners, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we see gospel love for enemies, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In Jesus' reaching out to Judas, we see him loving an enemy, loving a sinner, and loving an ungodly man. And it's really important that we note that he does the same for each one of us, because all of us without Christ are ungodly, are sinners, and are enemies, lost and in need of a Savior. We see that Jesus does this for all of us through his atoning death on the cross. Through that death on the cross, Jesus did it all. Through that death on the cross, there is hope for us amidst our ungodly ways. There is deliverance for all of those who are caught in sin, and there is reconciliation for the most hardened enemies of God. Our passage finishes up in verses 7 through 13, talking about the Passover with the disciples. And it's really important to note that just as the account of this event in John shows us, verses 7 through 13 show us that the betrayal of Jesus does not catch Him off guard. Not at all. He knew it was coming. The day of unleavened bread came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Luke is really precise about the date, and he's also precise about Jesus' careful preparations. Verses 8 through 12, it says, "'So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, "'Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it.' "'And they said to him, "'Where will you have us prepare it?' "'And he said to them, "'Behold, when you have entered the city, "'a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. "'Follow him into the house that he enters, "'and tell the master of that house, "'the teacher says to you, "'Where is the guest room, "'where I may eat the Passover with with my disciples?' And He will show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. So, Jesus, as we see, in celebrating the Passover meal with His disciples, He anticipates His own death. And we see the secrecy in the preparation of the Passover meal due to the fact that Jesus knew of Judas's intention to betray Him at a time where He and the disciples were isolated. And so, if Jesus had let it known where the meal would occur... Judas would have informed, you know, he would have informed the chief priests and the scribes about that. The meal then would have never taken place. The institution of the Lord's Supper would have never been given to the church. So, Jesus Himself had prearranged the place and the secret signs by which Peter and John would find it. You see, He says to find a man carrying a jar of water, You know, this would have been something that would have been very different in that culture. Back then, women normally would have carried those jars, while men carried water in skins. And so, this guide was easily recognizable because he told them, hey, go and find this thing. You're going to see it. It's not something that you will normally see. It'll be very obvious. And so, they are able to easily recognize that. Everything then goes like clockwork. They found it just as he told them the householder led them to a large room above his home that was furnished, literally meaning spread, indicating that the couches were arranged, they were covered for the meal, just as Jesus told them it would be. And so, Jesus' two most trusted disciples hurry off to purchase a lamb and all the trimmings for the feast. Then they stand in one of the three great sacrificial shifts at the temple. They bear the lamb back to the house. They present the skin to the owner. They put the lamb roast on with the falling dark light of the candles, and they wait for Jesus and the others. From the onset of this event, we see that Jesus was in control of His destiny. He wasn't caught unexpectedly. He didn't mess around and get Himself killed. Jesus would accomplish exactly what He set out to do, and He would do that on His own schedule. We see here, the mysterious forces of evil at work. We see Satan enters Judas, but at the same time, Judas made his own choices. He made his own decisions. Satan can control or can gain control of Judas only because Judas allows it, and yet Judas' giving of himself to evil allows evil to become more and more strong in his life. Indeed, Judas is now beyond the reach of goodness. He has given himself entirely to evil as he does this. As Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, there is a mystery of lawlessness already at work. Often throughout my life as a believer, we hear so many people, and myself, you know, we wonder, what motivated Judas to betray Jesus? I mean, he had ministered with Jesus for several years. He heard his teaching day after day. He saw his healings. He saw these exorcisms. Why, after seeing all of that, would he turn around and betray him for 30 pieces of silver? We wonder, is he disappointed that the kingdom promises are not realized in the way that he was hoping? Does Jesus' emphasis on suffering deter him from following Jesus? We don't don't know. We don't know the answer. All that we know, the reason that we are given, is His desire for money. At the end of the day, evil is always irrational. It's always senseless, and it is always self-destructive. It promises joy, but it delivers sorrow and pain and death. And it's important that we go to apply this passage. As we do that, that we understand something really big here. We are not inherently better than Judas. Apart from the grace of God, we too could have easily acted just as Judas did. Each and every one of us are sinners in need of a Savior in a world full of sinners in need of a Savior. And that brings us to a couple direct applications this morning. The first is to fear God. If we fear man more than we fear God, we will serve man or ourselves instead of serving God. If we fear man more than we fear God, then we will do some wicked things even at holy times. We will hardly even recognize God when He is incarnate among us. But as Christians, we are called to fear God rather than to fear man. And we cannot please man and God at the same time. We must serve God rather than man, because if we don't, then we will serve man. We will serve ourselves. The entire duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So let us be a people who cultivate the fear of the Lord, a people who revere our Creator in all things. Let our households be built on the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. So we see our first application is to fear the Lord. Our second is to resist Satan. Satan is real, He appeared first as the most cunning of all the wild animals in Genesis 3, and He comes to steal and kill and destroy, as we see in John 10. And so, to ignore Him would be a huge mistake. It is complete foolishness to pretend that He doesn't exist, especially when we see His handiwork everywhere among us. Just think about the reality of greed and betrayal that we see throughout our society, throughout our culture. Do you think that greed and betrayal come from God? Of course not. Of course we don't think that. We know that betrayal is Satan's idea and Satan's plan. And as those who have the Bible, we know his tricks. And so beware of the adversary. Resist Him, and He will flee you. He cannot enter a Christian who has the Spirit of God. Judas didn't have the Spirit, but we do. As First John 4, 4 tells us, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So, resist Satan with greater power. Don't give him a hold in your life. Don't believe his lies. Don't believe his whispers. Just as he betrayed Christ, he will betray you. And so, resist the devil, and he will flee. And lastly, as we apply this, as we fear God, as we resist Satan, we must be his workmanship in our world. And being his workmanship is something we talk a a lot about here at Seaford. We do because it's so important. We look out into our world. We look out into our mission field, and it is evident that our world is lost and in need of a Savior. When we went on our mission trip, we took the students now two weeks ago, sorry, two weeks ago to Philadelphia to work with Alex Hanovich and Horizon Community Church. We sat, we got there on Saturday, we, we worshiped with him at his church on Sunday, and then we we all had a meeting to kind of unpack the week before we began. And one of the things that he said that we're going to notice about Philadelphia is that Philadelphia is a city marked by a spirit of hopelessness. He said that that is really evident as with the heroin epidemic that is just viciously going through the city of Philadelphia and is even beginning now to creep into the suburbs. Where, you know, pre-COVID, he said that really wasn't even a thing in the suburbs, but it is it is it is growing and growing. There's just this hopelessness, and also where he is at, where he is serving. Uh, in the suburbs over in Bryn Mawr. It's a very wealthy area. But he says it's marked by a spirit of hopelessness there too. So they, all these people seemingly have everything that the world says is important. They have the money, they have the status. Yet there's this hopelessness there too. It's not been enough. They haven't found that fulfillment. And so we saw that in each as we went out into the city and we saw the hopelessness there in the poverty. We saw that hopelessness even within the wealthy in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And as we go out there, as we went out there, and we saw that need, we saw that need of a Savior right there in Philadelphia, but we also see it right here too, right here as the tide of culture shifts us to where the tide of culture always does, in the opposite direction of the Lord. We know that we need a Savior, We know that that Savior is Jesus. And in the incarnation, He stripped Himself of His glory so that He could wash us clean. He is our servant Savior. And though we have raised our heel against Him, though we have sinned and rebelled against Him, He offers salvation to us. He will never betray us like we betrayed Him. And so, as we look out into our world and into our community, lost and without hope. As we fear the Lord, as we resist Satan, let us be His workmanship, sharing of the great eternal hope that we have in Jesus. And As the band comes up now, I do want to say, if you're here this morning and you want to place your trust in Christ as your Savior, Let me encourage you. Let today be the day of salvation. Consider His love for you, proven through the crucifixion of His Son and the righteousness offered through His resurrection. Confess your sin, repent, and believe, and the hope of salvation in Jesus will be yours. If you're here this morning and you would like to know more about this hope in Jesus that that we're here talking about, you know, first let me tell you, I would love to talk to you about that. And also, if you're, if you're on the live stream or, or you would like to, you can email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. But either way, we would love to talk to you about that. We would love to answer any questions that you have. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much again for the chance to be able to gather here today, God, to worship you God, to spend this time in your Word, in the book of Luke. God, we know each and every one of us have experienced the pain of betrayal in our lives, God, and it cuts deep. And we also know that sinners before a holy God, each and every one of us has betrayed you as well. And God, we pray that as we live our lives, help us to fear you, help us to seek you out, to grow in our knowledge of you, to desire to grow in our knowledge of you, our love for you, our relationship with you. And as we do that, we know that if we want to do that, if we want to grow in that way, God, we pray that you help us to resist Satan. Help us to resist sin in our lives, and instead of clinging to sin, instead of clinging to self-worship and lifting ourselves and fearing man, that we fear you, that we resist the devil, and that we cling to you in everything. And as we do that, God, we pray that you help us to be your workmanship. Help us to see this world that we, you know, the people that we love, the people that even that we don't know, that you know you love. Break our hearts for the lost, God, and help us to be intentional about being your workmanship as we live our lives serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Stand with us as we sing in response and worship and thank God for what we've heard today and bring it into our hearts and into our week. To see your pain Written on your face Bearing the awesome As its maker, mouths his head, curtain torn in two, dead already. Life is mine
0: You guys can all have a seat.